Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. This is episode 165, the lipid episode, the cholesterol episode, if uh, uh, that suits your fancy. Austin, what's going on, man? Hey, how are you? How, how excited are you to talk about this? Um, I mean moderately so how about that <laughs> just because i've been so immersed in it for so long and then finally i said you know i just have to culminate this put it on the website so we can link people uh to to the the three masterpieces <laughs> <laughs> yeah we just published a three-part series uh the basic guide to cholesterol parts one two and three basically encapsulates all of our thoughts on cholesterol dietary cholesterol cholesterol levels in the blood management, you know, to some extent is in there as well. And if you're wondering, like, what does barbell medicine think about X as it's related to cholesterol levels? It's in there. So we're hopeful that you guys find these pieces useful. And I'll link those in the description below. And this is the podcast edition where we talk about all three of those things. So I think to start with, you know, just to get kind of the gist of this podcast, what is the relationship between blood levels, serum levels of cholesterol and heart disease risk? Yeah, that's a very uh, large, complicated question that has been, um, I suppose, getting researched and investigated over uh, over 100 years worth of, of data have, have gone into this. And so a lot of folks uh, may have some peripheral idea that maintaining high levels of blood cholesterol uh, tend to be associated with a higher risk of having heart disease complications. And so when I say heart disease, that's what you may hear of as things like plaque in the blood vessels um, that can contribute to things like heart attacks and strokes and issues in the, the legs when uh, plaque accumulates in the blood vessels down there and, and lots of other areas in the body. And so starting from, again, what, over 100 years ago, we had observe these relationships between high levels of cholesterol in the blood and higher rates of this sort of plaque development and these um, cardiovascular um, uh, complications, complications affecting the heart and the blood vessels. And over the intervening century, decades in, in between, uh, that very broad general observation of high total cholesterol levels in the blood has been refined a ton. And we have come to have a much, much, much more detailed uh, understanding of this process and, and how it evolves over the lifespan. Uh, and we've developed such an understanding and interventions for it that have led to really quite massive decreases in heart disease deaths over the past uh, 50-ish years where they had whereas they had peaked you know in the in the mid uh, you know 20th century now uh, the rates of heart disease deaths at least in the US have been steadily on the decline for, for a long time as a result of this understanding so we made a lot of progress I like it so just in general higher levels of cholesterol, well, not actually cholesterol, but we'll discuss the nuance of the uh, nuances of this. But general, in general, higher levels of cholesterol increase the risk of heart disease, which is an umbrella term for a bunch of different actual specific diagnoses. Um, I think this is a good point, a good time to really hammer out the definitions. Uh, what we're talking about when we say blood cholesterol levels, are we actually talking about cholesterol? Are we talking about fat? Lipoproteins? What is a lipoprotein? Um, 
this is stuff that you probably cover with your, you know, the interns that you get on your service. <laughs> they should know this, but uh, I think it, when we talk about this, sometimes we just say cholesterol, even though that's not really what we mean. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, even we went through uh, uh, some biochemistry, like lipidology education in medical school, but it didn't really sink in at the time for the same reasons that a lot of other stuff didn't sink in. We just had too much to learn. So I find that a lot of them don't have the, the greatest understanding of this. And this is also something we cover at the seminar and in lots of other places. So in general, we have these uh, general substances that are called lipids. And that's just a chemistry term for this kind of a substance that basically doesn't dissolve in, in water. This includes things like fats, which themselves have subtypes, things like fatty acids. Those are fats that we can burn for energy, as well as other things like cholesterol. Cholesterol is a molecule that has a ton of different roles in the body. It's used for a wide variety of physiological functions, um, making various hormones and bile acids and, and uh, a myelin for our nerves and, and uh, lots and lots and lots of things. It's involved in our cell membranes. So very important uh, molecule. And in fact, so important that every cell in our body basically has what it needs to make make cholesterol for itself. It does. They don't actually rely on the delivery of high amounts of cholesterol from the blood. Our cells make the cholesterol that they need. And there are genetic syndromes where, for example, an infant a baby may be born without the ability to make its own cholesterol. And that has pretty catastrophic consequences uh, They don't tend to survive. They have a lot of, you know, uh, issues neurologically and, and in a lot of other systems. So it's pretty important. But the point here is that cholesterol is one molecule that's very important. It's separate from fats, fatty acids, the kind of things that we burn for energy that we consume in foods, things like that. And then ultimately, again, recall that I said that all of these are things that don't dissolve in water. And as it turns out, humans are mostly water, including our bloodstream. And so in order to be transported around the body, um, if they don't dissolve, we can't just have like non-dissolved particles just floating around in the blood. That would be problematic. And so we have carriers. These carriers are called lipoproteins. They are proteins, uh, uh, molecules that contain a protein component and a lipid component together, and they can basically serve as a vehicle. These are usually spherical molecules. They're like a ball that contains things like fatty acids, triglycerides, cholesterol, etc., and transport them uh, through the water-based bloodstream, uh, either from where they're leaving, like the liver commonly or the gut, and then taking them around the body to tissues and ultimately back to the liver uh, uh, in most situations. So that's the difference between all these kind of uh, uh, fancy words that we've used so far. Yeah, it's just like a cargo ship. That's the way I think about it. If, if I'm like Miss Fri Miss Frizz, <laughs> Miss Frizzle from, <laughs> was that Reading Rainbow or was that the uh, Magic, Magic School, School Bus? Magic School Bus, bro. <laughs> yeah, I feel like those were all lumped together to me in my childhood. <laughs> but yeah, it's like a barred ship just carrying around waxy substances like cholesterol and and, and lipids yep. and whatever. Because otherwise they would <laughs> can't just travel alone. They just stick there. Yep. So, all right. So that's the difference between a cholesterol and a fat. These are, you know, basically carried on lipoproteins. That's what we actually tend to measure uh, when we do a quote unquote cholesterol test. We're not testing what is the raw cholesterol in your blood. We're measuring lipoproteins. Um, so when we measure that in the blood on a, again, it's a lipid panel, but we call it a cholesterol test sometimes. Some people will refer to like a good and a bad type of cholesterol. And again, these are, we're really talking about lipoproteins, the barge ships, the vehicles carrying these things around. Is there really a good and a bad type? Yeah. So there are 
different subtypes of these lipoprotein carriers, the barges, as you call them. There's a whole bunch of different kinds um, that we don't necessarily need to get into all the details on, but some of them uh, tend to be more directly related to the risk of heart disease. And others we have observed tend to not be as directly related, but are actually what we call inversely related, meaning when the numbers are a little higher, things tend to be better. When the numbers are lower, they tend to be worse. And so this is where people will describe this quote unquote bad cholesterol as uh, the type that comes out on the cholesterol test or lipid panel as low density lipoprotein or LDL cholesterol. That the low density lipoprotein is one type of carrier. And when we do a regular cholesterol test, we're measuring the amount of cholesterol carried on all those low density lipoproteins in a given amount of blood. Um, the, on the other hand, we also have high density lipoproteins. Those are HDL, a different type of barge. And when we do a cholesterol test, we're measuring the amount of cholesterol on those high density lipoprotein barges. Um, and the HDL uh, uh, cholesterol is the number that when, uh, you know, over years of study, we found that when those numbers are really low, people tend to have worse outcomes. They don't tend to do well. And when those are a bit higher, then people tend to do better. And so that was subsequently became known as this quote unquote good cholesterol because we liked higher levels of it. Things, the relationship there got a lot more complicated the more we learned. Um, whereas the LDL cholesterol, the higher that went, we had pretty consistent evidence for a very long time that that tends to be very, you know, a lot more clearly related to the risk of heart disease. But again, when we're measuring these sorts of things on a cholesterol panel, we're measuring the amount of cholesterol being carried on each of these different kinds of ships around the blood. That's what these tests tell us. It's very important to point this out because it's also important to know what does the test not tell us? Things it doesn't tell us. For example, it doesn't tell us the number of ships that are kind of floating around in the blood. It doesn't tell us the total number of lipoprotein particles. It just tells us the amount of cholesterol that's being carried on them, um, which will come up again in a little bit. Another thing it does not tell us is how much cholesterol is inside of our cells and tissues. Remember that I said cholesterol is really important to do a whole bunch of things and our cells make all the cholesterol that they need for the most part. But when we measure it in the blood, that's not telling us whether the cells are making enough or if they have enough or something like that. And this is important because a lot of people get worried, for example, if their cholesterol levels get low or if they get treated and the levels go down, they're like, well, now I'm deficient in cholesterol. I don't have enough. No, that's not accurate because again, your cells are making what they need. And if they don't, if they're not able to make what they need, then and only then do they suck it up out of the blood um, uh, uh, in the peripheral tissues and things like that. So it's important to know where am I drawing this test from and what is it telling me and what is it not telling me? Because we have other tests available to us that can tell us other things. Yeah, that would be a standard quote unquote lipid panel. That is the you know technical term <clears throat> for the test that you would, most people would get when for primary screening uh, for what is called in the medical community, dyslipidemia, or in common terms, you know, high cholesterol, you're getting a standard lipid, lipid panel, and that's going to give you a series of results that tells you how much cargo is on the ship, but not necessarily how many ships there are. Correct. There are additional tests that can be done. Um, one of which we'll talk about is the apolipoprotein B test, and that has been getting getting a lot of coverage recently. Um, and, you know, I'd probably say over the last 10 years as we've kind of, as the test has come out and we've gotten more and more data on it. So Austin, tell people what apolipoprotein B is, what this test is, and then uh, why you might get it in addition 
to a standard lipid panel. Yeah. So remember how I mentioned that the regular cholesterol test tells us the amount of cholesterol being carried on all the ships in a given volume of blood. Um, as it turns out, the risk for heart disease seems to be much more clearly and directly related to the total number of lipoproteins that are circulating. And in particular, the total number of lipoproteins that are circulating over the course of the entire lifespan. So this is kind of like a cumulative exposure um, issue. So, you know, you're born with a certain amount circulating, uh, and this may go up over time. But basically, the idea is that the higher these levels are, and the longer they are elevated for across your entire life, then the higher the risk of heart disease will be. So babies, for example, who are born with genetically extremely high levels of these lipoproteins that are carrying cholesterol around in the blood, they are at the highest risk of developing extremely early heart disease. Like in childhood, they can develop plaque and heart attacks and things like that. On the other hand, individuals who are born with other genetic uh, uh, kind of changes that result in them having very, very low levels of these lipoproteins that carry cholesterol in the blood, these number of ships, they can have upwards of 80, 90% lower risk of having heart disease ever over the course of their entire lifespan. This is some of the most powerful evidence we have in this scene that we'll, we'll come back to in a little bit. So basically what we also, not only do we want to know the amount of cholesterol being carried on these ships, but we want to know how many ships are there, how, man, how many of these particles are circulating. And as it turns out, the particles that we care about, um, the ones that tend to be, you know, that tend to uh, deliver cholesterol into the walls of our blood vessels and, and promote the development of these plaques, they all carry a little protein on their surface. And this protein is called apolipoprotein B, which we will uh, abbreviate from here on out as just ApoB. And so when we measure the amount, and they have just one of these on each of their surface, one of these ApoB proteins on their surface. So when we measure blood levels of ApoB in a given volume of blood, this basically tells us it's a measurement of particle number. Now we're actually measuring, as you said earlier, the number of ships, not just the amount of cargo on them. And this actually turns out to be a better predictor, a better marker of heart disease risk compared to the cholesterol panel, the regular old cholesterol panel. That test still has value. It still tells us some useful information, but it's not perfect um, because sometimes, for example, patients can have situations where their blood cholesterol levels on the regular cholesterol panel might be might look normal or they might be even on the lower side but they might have a whole hot really 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 high number of particles so their apob number might be really high patients in that situation are actually at high risk of having heart disease complications on the other hand sometimes patients can have higher levels of blood cholesterol on a regular cholesterol panel but if you check their particle number with an apob test and that number is low those patients are actually at lower risk of heart disease. So there's this possible possible situation that can happen in uh, sometimes 20-ish percent of people that's called discordance, where the numbers don't necessarily match. And what we found is that the risk of heart disease and heart disease complications tends to track much more closely with the ApoB number than it does with the regular cholesterol panel. Both still have value, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of researchers in the scene that um, have been harping on this actually for for decades, honestly, looking back to like the 60s and 70s, there are papers of people uh, talking about ApoB and, and it's finally becoming a bit more accessible and available as a blood test. And it turns out to not be super you know, expensive or crazy of a test to, to order on people. So I've been getting it much more frequently on some of my primary care folks. Yeah, that's the thing. The, the price has dropped precipitously as it's become wider used and labs, you know, have more and more access to this, which means people have more and more access to this. So the question then becomes, when would you actually 
recommend somebody to get the ApoB test? Uh, so I think that there's actually a f- there's some discussion around this topic. Um, mm-hmm. I frequently will order them together on patients, so I have both pieces of information. However, if I find, for example, that the ApoB number, the particle number, matches pretty much what I would expect based on the lipid panel, in other words, if it looks like they are concordant, if one is low risk, the other one is low risk, then cool, From maybe from here on out, I can just stick with the regular lipid panel. Some would argue just always get both. Um, and some might argue that they're going to emphasize the ApoB a whole lot more. I think that there's some flexibility for, for practice there. For higher risk people, then I would definitely be keeping the ApoB in the mix. Um, but up front, if I'm like doing an initial evaluation and screening on somebody, I'm probably pulling both up front. Yep. Yep. And I, I think we're going to find out more as more and more data comes out because people are going to be ordering both. And so we'll have yep. additional data to tell us, yep, you should always get both. And the recommendations may change to always get both or when you should and shouldn't. Um, okay. The other common test, uh, not quite as common as, uh, ApoB and certainly not as common as the lipid panel that's been around for, uh, well forever. It seems like, mm-hmm. uh, is the coronary artery calcium score or CAC score. This has been getting a lot of play, particularly in the biohacker, uh, sphere. You know, hey, if you got a CAC score of zero, so no calcium in the coronary arteries, you're good to go, bro. doesn't matter what your cholesterol levels are if your CAC score is zero. <laughs> so let's cover what is a CAC score and how do you use that in the clinic uh, and when would it be appropriate to maybe order it? Yeah. So this process of uh, developing plaque in the walls of blood vessels, again, it uh, results when these Lipoprotein particles can penetrate the wall of the blood vessel, deposit their cholesterol there. This generates an immune response, an inflammatory response. And over time, the plaque that develops, it can, again, through this immune response and modification over time, it can become calcified. And that means that there can be some calcium that's deposited in there. And calcium is a mineral that tends to light up on x-rays. That's how you see bones, because bones are mostly calcium and they light up. So we can use fancy types of x-rays or or, uh, fancy types of CT scans to actually measure and look at whether this individual has uh, calcium deposited in the blood vessels in and around their heart uh, as an assessment of heart disease risk. And so this can be a potentially quite useful piece of information. And I do use this sometimes um, if I'm in the hospital, for example, and I have somebody who, uh, you know, might be experiencing some some chest pain, but I see that they maybe just very recently had a, a coronary calcium of, of zero and all their other tests and EKG and blood tests and things like that look okay, then I'm feeling pretty good about that person. Um, on the other hand, people who um, have very high amounts of coronary calcium um, I tend to be a little bit more concerned about because they probably have a bit higher risk of having heart disease related complications. But of course, the relationship is not quite that simple um, because people sometimes use this test outside of, I think, the the realm or the scope of what it should be, or they, they will kind of take the conclusions from it and apply them a little bit inappropriately. Basically, this test is super useful when the score is very low uh, in a patient uh, the older they get. So if I see a CAC of zero in somebody who is of an age, say, you know, middle age or later in whom I would expect them to otherwise have some calcium present just from age related progression of this stuff, then that can be pretty useful to help me kind of reassess and say, maybe they're lower risk than I thought. Sometimes really young people will get these done. And that's kind of what you're getting at with some of the biohacker types. They'll get these tests done when they're like, you know, 30 and it's like, well, yeah, you're supposed to have 
a CAC of zero when you're 30. And that does not mean that having your blood, you know, LDL cholesterol level of 500 is nothing to worry about because it's, this is a cumulative lifelong process. There's a reason why these complications, heart attacks, strokes, things like that typically happen, start cropping up in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s kind of, kind of age timeframe, uh, because this is a cumulative lifelong process. So, uh, you have to be careful when you're interpreting this because it's also possible to have what's called soft plaque. This is plaque that has not uh, been been calcified. And so that would not show up on this kind of a coronary artery calcium or a CAC scan. So the score has value. It has to be interpreted very carefully, applied very carefully. And I would not use a CAC of zero to say uh, that, I, that I don't have to worry about any of my other risk factors for, for heart disease to include blood cholesterol levels or blood pressure or anything else. I think that recognizing that this is a, you know, a cumulative lifelong process means that, Hey, it means that I might be in lower risk than I, uh, uh than, than I thought right now. But, uh, you know, given that this is, I would hope to, to live a while longer, um, I should probably take control of these other things uh, as much as I can. Yep. Yep. Just to speak a little bit further to some of the times where a CAC score of zero or a, or a CAC score in general may not have value at predicting your risk of heart disease. So athletes and very, very active individuals, particularly those who are exercising in excess of 3,000 met minutes per week, which just to put that in perspective, that's three times the current physical activity guidelines or higher, they will often have CAC scores that are elevated, meaning that they're not zero. And uh, this it does not seem to increase the risk of heart disease. In fact, in those individuals, they have a lower incidence of heart disease <laughs> than physically, you know, insufficiently active or those just meeting the guidelines. Uh, effectively, something to do with adaptation to exercise and that training volume causes the CAC score to go up, but doesn't really increase the risk of heart disease. Similarly, statins, for example, can <laughs> uh, do not only do not modify the CAC score, but sometimes it can go up and that definitively reduces risk of um, heart disease. And then finally, this recent study that was actually published uh, in the American College of Cardiology, December of 2021, used a uh, study cohort of just under 3,500 people who all had a CAC score of zero. And so if you got that value, if you were in the biohacker community, and I'm not trying to diss on them, I'm just saying that this is something that's commonly thrown out and you might read this on the internet here on the Rogan podcast or whatever, um, not to pick on that particular podcast, but other podcasts, podcasts like that, that if you have CAC score zero, you're good to go, bro. Well, the, just 3,500 people aged 50, uh, average age of 58, um, two thirds were female, one third, uh, were male. Uh, basically they all had a CAC score of zero and they found that despite this, there was significant increase, significant increase in heart disease, incident heart disease. If you were a smoker, if you had type two diabetes, or if you had blood pressure and all of those uh, high blood pressure and all of those things would man, uh, be well served by intervention, uh, stop smoking, treating the high blood pressure, um, uh, treating the diabetes and also, uh, usually from statin therapy on the lat, uh, on the latter two, cause basically these other risk factors matter, even if your CAC score is zero. So it, we're just trying to put these in perspective, right? Because you, you may have gotten these tests, you may have read about these tests, and you're kind of wondering like, okay, well, what does this tell me? What should I do? And it's like, you don't get a free pass if your CAC score is zero. And just because your CAC score is elevated, particularly if you're like an ultra endurance athlete or, you know, something like that, you may not, it may not actually matter that much. So it's nuanced as somebody might say. Okay. So that's, those are the tests. 
covered this overview of what are this, what's the relationship between uh, blood levels of cholesterol and lipoproteins and heart disease risk. So how does the how does blood cholesterol like how how does that actually increase or like how do, what determines the levels of cholesterol in the blood and also the lipoprotein levels? I think the first part we can start out with is genetics. What's the role of your genetics and the level of these two items? Yeah. So, um, there are a couple different important pathways of how these lipids and cholesterol circulate through our body. Cause part of it comes from our diet and then that will come in, get absorbed through the gut, go to the liver, get processed, et cetera. And then, uh, our liver also itself makes certain things that end up getting exported into the bloodstream on these lipoproteins. So these are kind of two important pathways that we have. And ultimately what needs to happen is these particles are swimming around in the blood. The things that are on them, be it triglycerides or fat, other fatty acids, the fat soluble vitamins, cholesterol, things like that, they need to eventually get pulled out of the blood. And so there are a bunch of different uh, receptors throughout the body and very heavily located on the liver. Um, for example, the low density lipoprotein receptor, the LDL receptor, that this particle, these particles can bind with and they can get pulled out of the blood. Um, and as they get pulled out of the blood, obviously levels will go down. Now, uh, there's a gene that will then code for things like the LDL receptor or any of these other, uh, you know, relevant players. And we get, uh, genes, the, the, uh, our inheritance of these genes obviously comes from mom and dad, and we get different alleles for these things. These are, you know, uh, um, there are parents contributions to that particular gene. And there can be variations. People can have variations in the genes for these particular, uh, 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 players. So for example, somebody might inherit uh, a gene um, that makes their LDL receptor work really, really, really poorly, uh, make it less sensitive, less able to pull these particles out of the blood. People who inherit uh, uh, genes for these receptors that can't really clear it out of the blood because it's not coming out of the blood, it builds up in the blood and you'll have really, really high levels. And since this is genetic, you have very high blood cholesterol levels, high le low density lipoprotein levels uh, from birth. And in the genetic studies on this, individuals with that kind of a genetic uh, lot in life, uh, they tend to have much higher risk of developing heart disease and lower uh, uh, life expectancy, higher risk of premature death. On the other hand, you could hit the genetic lottery and you could inherit some gene variation from uh, one or either of your parents um, that results in your receptors working really, really well. Um, they just are like vacuums sucking this stuff up out of the blood, into the liver, into the tissues. That means that since it's getting pulled out of the blood, your levels are low and they're low from birth for life, even extremely low <laughs> blood levels from birth. And these individuals have effectively no risk of heart disease. Like they would have to try as hard as they could, um, to do all these other, you know, bad lifestyle habits and stuff like that to, to get heart disease because they're going to be at such low risk because of this, uh, genetic inheritance that they've had. And there are lots of genes that can influence these, these levels, either how much is being absorbed in the diet, how much is being produced by the liver, how quickly it's being cleared out of the blood. And all of these variations can impact heart disease risk. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this genetic, uh, find these genetic findings are some of the most compelling, clear pieces of evidence that we have on this whole topic. There are lots of people who are skeptics, probably some people who are listening right now who are skeptical of any relationship between cholesterol and heart disease, maybe because they've read any number of things out there, but there is, I struggle, I struggle to find a compelling counter argument 
against these genetic data that we have. When we see that people with genetically very low cholesterol have almost no heart disease risk and they live longer, they don't have a higher risk of cancer or like hypogonadism, testosterone complications that a lot of lifters worry about, stuff like that. And then on the other hand, people with genetically high cholesterol across the lifespan have higher risk of uh, having these kind of complications, uh, lower uh, uh, lifespan, stuff like that. And that's also corroborated not just by genetic evidence, but also prospective cohort evidence and mechanistic evidence and controlled feeding studies and like all kinds of other things that are all kind of pointing in the same direction. So genetics play a major, major, major role here. Yeah, multiple lines of converging evidence. And it's very difficult to deal with the genetic data with that unless you just say, yeah, this is all flawed and I'm just not going to pay any attention to it and bury your head in the sand and say, it's probably not related. <laughs> I don't get how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. When you could, you, you can basically look at how d variations in completely different genes that downstream result in similar effects on blood cholesterol levels can re generate predictable changes in heart disease risk. I see very little, uh, other possible explanations for this other than the idea that this lipoprotein, uh, cholesterol, uh, issue is the, the, the causal factor here. Like one of the main causal factors. Yep. I'm sure wherever we post this, there's going to be some pushback from someone who read something. We're expecting but it. We're expecting it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, genetics obviously can play a big role in determining the amount of cholesterol that's in your blood and being carried by lipoproteins. In addition to just number of lipoproteins or ships, as we talked about earlier, your diet can also play a major role here. So a few other, you know, components to this dietary uh, thing. So dietary cholesterol is its own entity, the cholesterol that's actually contained in the diet. Um, the effects of that particular thing are modest. So when people are talking about dietary cholesterol, usually the first thing that comes to mind is eggs. They're like, well, eggs have a lot of cholesterol in them. How's that going to affect my, you know, blood cholesterol or blood lipoprotein levels? These are relatively small, if not absent effects in general. Um, the thing is that most foods that contain dietary cholesterol, particularly significant amounts of dietary cholesterol, tend to also be high in dietary fat. Uh, and so to the extent that the amount of foods that contain dietary cholesterol influence your blood cholesterol levels, that is really determined by the type of fat that you're consuming, uh, polyunsaturated versus saturated fat and that ratio. So the typical Western diet has a, we call it a P to S ratio, polyunsaturated to saturated fat ratio. Uh, the typical Western diets, so the standard American diet, uh, is 0 0.6. So, cause we consume a lot more saturated fat than, and a relatively low amount of polyunsaturated fat. Um, the shift that we'd like to see is get that ratio closer to one. So substantially higher, uh, intake of polyunsaturated fat and a slight reduction in saturated fat. So if you're looking for a bigger lever to pull, it's not really a reduction in saturated fat because we do eat up more than is recommended. The current guidelines suggest, Less than 10% of your total daily calories are come from saturated fat. And we're somewhere in that 11 to 15% range for most folks. But some people who are on a carnivore or a ketogenic diet who eat a lot, a lot of meat uh, or animal products that have saturated fat may be much higher. Uh, but the bigger lever to pull is to increase polyunsaturated fat. That tends to be the, the bigger uh, uh, target there. But in general, if you were thinking about, well, how does the dietary cholesterol, just dietary cholesterol in and of itself without di a dietary fat component, how does that influence my blood cholesterol levels? But it typically doesn't unless somebody absorbs a ton of cholesterol from their diet. That's relatively rare. So 
when people are talking about dietary cholesterol, we're, we're really talking about dietary fat. That tends to be a bigger issue. Um, so into the, that dietary saturated fat uh, component there, this is not a, you know, uniform sort of category. When I say dietary saturated fat, it can be meat, it can be in milk or dairy products, it can be in other foods. They are not all the same. In general, dairy sources, particularly milk sources of saturated fat, tend to not increase dietary cholesterol or uh, blood levels of cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels. So it would really have no negative effect on uh, heart disease risk. In fact, there's data showing the opposite relationship. Whereas saturated fat intake from red meat tends to increase blood cholesterol levels and blood lipoprotein levels in a negative way, uh, particularly the low density lipoprotein. And there's mechanistic studies showing um, that this happens. There's case control studies. There's interventional uh, random, you know, uh, studies like that are actually well-controlled feeding studies that show this to be the case. So when people say red meat doesn't make your cholesterol levels go up, it's like, where did you read that? <laughs> and like citation desperately needed because we receive, we see this so uniformly, it'd be very difficult to make that claim with a straight face, uh, unless you were just making it up, in which case like, well, all right, you did it with straight face. You weren't sure. Um, so the deal on with dietary saturated fat, the current recommendations are to keep the uh, intake less than 10% of your total daily calories. So that means if you have a 3000 calorie day calorie goal, less than 300 calories per day um, from dietary saturated fat, uh, which again, we'd probably limit that to like red meat, things like butter, um, other other things like that. Even stuff like coconut, like coconut oil. People are like, it's a medium chain triglyceride. It's like, yep. And I, it, I just pause. <laughs> They're like, well, it's different. I'm like, that's true, but still high in saturated fat. No indication that it works like it, that. It has a similar outcome to like uh, milk, for example, which is you know has a lot of saturated fat. But studies have shown that it's uh, safe and maybe actually be beneficial um, from a heart disease risk and other health outcomes. Uh, the other big part of the diet here has to do with carbohydrate intake, particularly refined carbohydrates, uh, those that are high in added sugar. Um, so there's both direct and indirect effects here. Indirectly, sugar, uh, diets with high amounts of added sugar tend to result in increased um, calorie consumption, increased energy consumption, which increases uh, body weight, body fat, etc. Also can directly increase triglycerides, which are an atherogenic or apolipoprotein B, ApoB containing uh, blood lipids. So um, just high amounts of refined uh, carbohydrates, or, and those, particularly those with added sugar, likely not satiating. So you're going to eat more and also tend to increase triglycerides in addition to potentially increasing body weight and body uh, fat. Um, and as far as the dietary guidelines go on this, uh, they've been all over the map um, as far as how uh, what their cutoff point right now for refined sugars are. It's 5% of total daily calories come from uh, added sugars, things with added sugars. And they don't stipulate this in the current 2020 to 2025 guidelines specifically, but they do kind of allude to this. The biggest source of added sugar uh, or foods with added sugar in the diet, in the American diet, are from sugar-sweetened beverages. And the issue with sugar-sweetened beverages are there, are, there are multiple. One, 
they tend to not be uh, foods that we compensate for, meaning that you're going to have 200 plus calories from a sugar sweetened beverage. So it's a soda, it's a tea, it's a, you know, whatever you're not going to eat 200 or whatever calories less um, later on in the day. Uh, you'll just eat the same. And so now you're in a calorie surplus. And again, that tends to increase body fat, um, which has its own effects on cl blood cholesterol levels and, uh, and triglyceride levels. Uh, the other part is when your dietary, the added sugar intake gets too high, you can also, you also run the risk for nutrient deficiency just because the foods that you're eating tend to be deficient in a lot of micronutrients that we need to function. So current guidelines are to keep it 5% or less uh, than your total daily intake. So in general, I just, I, I try to tell folks like we should be including more, um, whole foods in the diet. So fruits and vegetables, uh, whole grains, legumes, beans, things of that nature, and probably limiting the uh, intake of foods with added sugar. doesn't mean you can't ever have them. Um, but the more you incorporate into your diet, the more attention you're going to have to pay to your diet, uh, in order to match up with your current energy needs. And then also the rest of, uh, your dietary pattern, meaning you're getting enough fiber, um, and things of that nature, but the dietary guidelines are actually pretty good. 2020 to 2025, uh, dietary guidelines came out, um, almost, uh, almost two years ago now, cause they were preprint in, uh, 2019. And just, if you haven't read them here actually are the guidelines. So number one, follow a healthy dietary pattern across the lifestyle to, uh, uh, to start out with it's follow a healthy dietary pattern across the lifespan to meet nutrient needs, help achieve a healthy body weight and reduce the risk of chronic disease. I feel like they read our article on <laughs> the science of red meat. Cause that was like our first statement <laughs> just copied right there. Uh, customize and enjoy nutrient dense food and beverage choices to reflect personal preferences, cultural traditions, and budgetary, uh, considerations. A healthy dietary pattern can benefit all individuals, regardless of age, race, or ethnicity, or current health status. And then focus on meeting food group needs with nutrient dense foods and beverages and stay within calorie limits. So they recommend vegetables of all types, fruits, grains, dairy, Pro, uh, lean proteins, and then some oils, including vegetable oils and oils and foods such as seafood and nuts. And then the last part is the limiting part. You're limiting added sugars, limiting saturated fat, limiting sodium. Uh, that's just added salt to the foods and then uh, limiting alcohol. So again, no, nothing new here as far as dietary guidelines, but people will often say the dietary guidelines are crap because look what's happening. It's like, uh, yeah, so like less than 2% of the nation's population actually follows the dietary guidelines or a dietary pattern that could conceivably like meet the dietary guidelines recommendations. So what's the problem with the dietary guidelines other than uptake? It's Correct. like blaming the physical activity guidelines for physical inactivity. Yeah, right. The physical activity guidelines are fine. The problem is the uptake. So if I have any beef with either set of guidelines, it's how do we get more people to do these things? Mm -hmm. Where's the behavioral change part? Where, <laughs> where are my pullout programs and the exercise guidelines, for example? But the actual guidelines themselves are totally reasonable. It's just that telling people what to do or making available what people should do doesn't necessarily in, change their behavior. I agree. I agree. But just from a, just from a practical standpoint, cause that was a lot of science with the nutrition piece. What do I, what kind of, what's my conversation look like with a, with a person in front of me who I've found to have, you know, high blood cholesterol levels. I'm trying to sure. get a sense of what their overall diet looks like in terms of, you know, total energy. I'm like looking for 
sugar sweetened or calorie containing beverage uh, uh, consumption. I'm looking for the amount of meat and processed meat uh, uh, consumption, butter use, stuff like that, and then the amount of fiber. And I'm trying to um, sub make substitutions or help the person coming up with a shared plan to make smart substitutions uh, such that I can get um, more fiber in the diet. And fiber can come from foods like oats, uh, legumes, lentils, um, vegetables, fruits, berries, things like that, I'm trying to get more of those in the diet. I'm trying to make substitutions for the fat sources. So if they're cooking with butter all the time, substituting that for a, an unsaturated source. I'm trying to get some fish in the diet regularly, if possible, um, if they're able to uh, get something like salmon, for example, although recognizing that there's a cost component there, but there are other types of, of fish um, that are less expensive that can be incorporated in the diet, you know, once or twice a week is great. I'm trying to get them to incorporate uh, some form of mixed nuts into the diet as well, because that can be another source of uh, uh, beneficial um, fatty acids to substitute some of the other ones. Um, and those are a lot of the big targets in terms of types of foods that I'm trying to get. So more plant sources, more vegetables, more fruits, fibrous foods, fish, nuts, and substituting out some of the things that we've talked about before, sugar, sweetened beverages, highly processed snack foods, super, you know, high consumption of fatty meats and processed meats. And then from there working on overall energy intake and stuff like that. That's like the, my stock kind of approach here. Yep. If you can get folks to stock their food in their home, stock these types of foods in their home, the, that takes care of the food environment, their local food environment, which tends to promote these, uh, this healthy dietary pattern, but getting that food in the home and uh, getting people to do that. That's, uh, we'll save that for our policy podcast. Uh, that'll be never, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so that's from a dietary component. Uh, the last part of that has to be, has to do with dietary fiber. There are multiple mechanisms by which dietary fiber influences blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels, which is why it's such a big lever for us to pull when actually counseling folks on how to reduce their blood, uh, cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels. Um, dietary fiber shows this almost dose dependent, uh, relationship, uh, with cholesterol lowering effect. So it's like the higher you go, the lower your blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels go. Um, I currently recommend, and these are this is consistent with the current uh, nutrition guidelines, that folks should aim to get at least 30 grams of dietary fiber in per day. We did do a podcast on fiber. If you really want to geek out on insoluble versus soluble and all these different you know fiber sources, that's on you. But aiming for 30 grams or more per day uh, would be the move, as the kids say. And again, you'd uh, get that from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, so stuff like whole wheat bread, uh, brown rice, potatoes, oatmeal, quinoa, if you're, uh, if you want the hipster version of rice <laughs> and, uh, and beans, stuff like that. Um, I tend to not recommend a fiber supplement unless people have, uh, relatively high levels of blood cholesterol and they want to reduce that further. So it's effectively, they're getting 30 grams or more per day from the diet and they have, uh, high levels of blood cholesterol and they're trying to reduce that further. Well, then they can take supplemental fiber if they want, but I wouldn't recommend supplemental fiber to get to that 30 gram level. Um, but yep, pretty, pretty big potential impact there. It's, uh, it's been shown that dietary recommendations or dietary interventions, including increasing dietary fiber to 30 grams or above, and then also, uh, reducing, uh, intake of saturated fat to less than 10% of total daily calories can reduce blood, uh, LDL and triglyceride levels, which are the main components of that apolipoprotein B containing, um, 
uh, lipoprotein levels, uh, 10 to 15%, uh, without weight loss, which is pretty good because weight loss would add additional, would reduce blood cholesterol levels further. So that's not nothing. It's, it's not a huge, huge number, but it's definitely one of the bigger or biggest changes we can make in a diet to get people's, uh, blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels, um, and of course, down. people should recognize that these are, you know, that those may be some some average data, but I mean, yep, I've seen absolutely. markedly larger drops from fairly straightforward substitutions in certain patients' diets. So yeah, particularly if they lose weight. Possible. Yep. Yeah, if if you lose weight in conjunction with that, the the potential to lo- to drop uh, cholesterol levels goes up substantially. But it's even without weight loss, which I found particularly impressive. Yeah. Yep. Um, from dietary intervention. Uh, next determinant of blood cholesterol and lipoprotein levels we'll go to is exercise. Because whenever you have these quote unquote lifestyle recommendations where people are talking about, yeah, change your diet. The next thing comes, it's always diet and exercise. You realize it's never like exercise and diet. It's always diet and exercise. Do you think it's like an alphabetical thing? Like subconsciously people are like D before E. I got it. Like, how does this happen? Like, and it's always fruits and vegetables. (laughs) It's never vegetables and fruit. That just sounds weird. You don't say that. That's that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, So if you're wondering about how does exercise uh, affect blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels. Basically, basically if folks are insufficiently active, which is defined as not quite reaching the physical activity guideline minimums, there are mostly indirect sort of mechanisms by which that affects blood cholesterol levels. So your insulin sensitivity, which uh, means how much insulin, which is produced by your pancreas, is needed to maintain uh, blood sugar levels and and other um, body functions, uh, you basically need more of it because you're less sensitive to it. It's like the heater's on at your home, but the house isn't getting warmer. So you have to turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up to get your bo- your house warm enough. Uh, and then also reduced sort of energy uh, use because you're less active. Both of those things tend to increase blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels. Um, when people tend to start exercise and particularly when they uh, engage in amount, uh, volumes of exercise that are consistent with the current guidelines or higher, they tend to build more lean body mass. They tend to reduce fat mass. Um, and so those are two additional mechanisms by which exercise can actually help lower blood cholesterol levels and lower blood lipoprotein levels. I will say this, that while there are many, many benefits of exercise, independent of weight loss, independent of uh, building lean body mass and all, and all this other stuff, the effect of exercise on blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels is relatively small. You can, if it helps you maintain an energy uh, restricted diet or energy appropriate diet where your body weight and body composition improves, if it helps you uh uh, you know, build a lot of lean body mass or significant amount of lean body mass or otherwise maintain a lower level, a lower amount of body fat, then that, that's great. It's going to help more. But in general, diet has a bigger impact here on blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels than exercise. It doesn't mean you shouldn't exercise. It just means that the benefits of exercise, they're, they're not as big as a diet. And uh, fortunately, there are a bunch of other cool things that happen when you exercise. So but you're still telling your patients to exercise, Austin. 100%. Yes. That I may not be hinging that on the blood cholesterol level as the kind of outcome of interest here, though. I might be hinging it on a lot of other things like, hey, 
worried about your, you know, independent physical independence or bone density or blood sugar or blood pressure or lots of other things that respond much more robustly to exercise than cholesterol levels. Yep. Yep. I agree. And then last thing, Austin, you want to tackle lifestyle here and meds. Yeah. So, um, there are, aside from the genetic piece, the diet piece and exercise, there are other things you've already kind of touched on the role of obesity and, and alongside obesity comes insulin resistance, um, insulin resistance. We've talked about in prior podcasts, particularly that on, on diabetes where, you know, your tissues don't respond quite as well to insulin anymore. You end up needing more to get the same effect. And over time that can lead to complications like developing over diabetes. Uh, and insulin has a, a, an important role in the regulation of how that LDL receptor that I mentioned earlier functions. And so patients who have insulin resistance, their receptors tend to not work quite as well. And when the receptors don't work well, again, these particles don't get cleared from the blood and they tend to run higher uh, because they kind of get backed up, so to speak. Um, and so improving insulin sensitivity uh, for example, through exercise, through losing excess body fat, particularly that visceral body fat that can accumulate in the belly uh, in and around the, the organs and stuff like that. Um, those, that is a very potentially potent way to improve the clearance of these particles from blood and bring down blood cholesterol levels and bringing those cholesterol levels down. Uh, the, again, because this is a cumulative lifelong effect, bringing them down the earlier in life, you can do that, the bigger potential benefits you have down the line. Same with smoking, alcohol. These are kind of like a lot of the general health priorities that we've talked about elsewhere. They all have a role to play. Of course, smoking also has its own direct impacts on uh, rapidly accelerating uh, uh, plaque development um, and heart disease risk. So um, that's something else to be to be covered. Finally, there are some medical conditions and certain medications that patients might be taking that themselves can impact and or increase um, blood cholesterol and, and lipoprotein levels. So for example, you know, hypothyroidism, having low thyroid function that is untreated, that can lead to, again, this, these receptors not working as well, not clearing it from the blood, blood levels increase. So getting that low thyroid function adequately treated would be one important uh, uh, target here. Um, there are other medical conditions. And as I mentioned, certain medications um, that can contribute to elevations in blood cholesterol blood triglycerides, things like that. And so those are things that I won't get into the weeds on here, but those are just things that, hey, if you have medical conditions, broadly speaking, or if you're taking certain medicines, reasonable to ask your doctor, hey, is there any chance that this could be, if you do have, are found to have high, you know, uh, blood cholesterol or ApoB levels, is there any chance that this could be impacting that? And if so, you know, what do you recommend? Are there alternatives? Whatever the case is. Um, and maybe there won't be, uh, for your particular condition, which is okay, because we have, again, all these other levers that we can work on. We can work on the diet piece. We can get maybe a little bit out of exercise, maybe some other lifestyle factors. And then if all comes down to it and we're like, hey, what, what's left is maybe heavily genetically driven, um, then we're in a situation where medications may be the, the last lever that we can pull to actually get the most risk reduction that we can over the lifespan. Yep. So that's pretty much uh, a wrap on what determines your blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels. Uh, so when does it actually matter what these levels are? We've kind of hinted that over the lifespan, like what yeah. your levels are yeah. <laughs> matters. So theoretically, the answer to that is uh, always, always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, when do we, when do you want to do something about it? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, looking back through 
research on plaque development um, and you know blood cholesterol, all this century worth of research that I've mentioned. Um, I mean, we have evidence of plaque, uh, you know, what are called fatty streaks, the beginnings of plaques developing even in adolescents, like in teenagers and stuff like that. This is something that is part of probably something that is part of the, the human condition, <laughs> arguably. And so these do essentially always matter across the lifespan. And in general, you would prefer the levels be lower compared to being higher or as early in life as you can. And that's, again, been supported by those genetic data where people who are born with genetically low levels, they tend to have the best outcomes, lowest risk of heart disease complications, longest longevity, lifespan, et cetera, compared to those with genetically high levels that are at higher risk, lower, shorter lifespans, uh, uh, stuff like that. So basically when it comes to um, everybody else who is not uh, either born with a genetic lottery or somewhat uh, <laughs> doomed uh, um, in the absence of, of other treatment, we try to get a sense of what is the person's risk when they're sitting in front of us. So if I have a patient you know, who, who I'm working with on this, trying to get a sense of what is their risk right now. So that is going to relate to things like their age, uh, their blood, what their blood cholesterol panel and their ApoB levels look like, their blood pressure control, smoking, diabetes, their family history, things like that. And we have risk calculators for this kind of thing. And these are part of current clinical practice guidelines is to estimate people's risk um, of developing a heart disease complication like a heart attack. And further treatment decisions like medications, for example, are often based on this existing risk. And that's because the people who stand to benefit the most are those who are at the highest risk and those who are at the lowest risk stand to benefit the least from those kind of treatments. That should make somewhat intuitive sense. The problem um, with these kind of guidelines is that as of now, they still hinge upon 10-year risk assessments, 10-year risk estimates. And guidelines for when to start screening patients for high cholesterol levels around 35 or 40, which I also don't agree with. I tend to do it earlier. But anyway, let's say you started at age 35 and you caught somebody with high blood cholesterol and you calculated their 10-year risk and you said, ah, you're low risk, um, you know, in this 10-year period. Well, of course they are because they're 35. Um, and so you might not as aggressively treat that person. And so there are some emerging kind of counter arguments, publications in the past couple of years where people are now proposing more like 30 year risk models and, and longer to try to handle those situations because, hey, we hope this 35 year old doesn't just make it to 45 without a heart attack. We'd rather they make it like, you know, a pretty full lifespan uh, without uh, uh, experiencing something like that. And so um, that's these are a couple areas where my own practice at this point, I actually tend to uh, in, in somewhat rare form, diverge a little bit from the guidelines insofar as I tend to screen earlier compared to what they say for blood lipids and for blood pressure. Um, and I also tend to think more about what is this individual's lifelong risk rather than just what their 10-year risk is and use that to guide treatment decisions. As far as treatments with medications, that's going to be uh, outside the scope of this podcast. Um, would just discuss with your doctor um, or, you know, pursue a, a consultation uh, uh, in other ways. Um, but that does also does not preclude the fact that you can pull on any of those other levers that we mentioned earlier, the diet piece, the lifestyle piece, you can do that at any time. You could, you could, we would argue you should be doing those things. Even if you haven't even had a blood cholesterol panel checked, you should be making those kind of substitutions in your diet. You should be getting your physical activity up to uh, meet or exceed the guidelines, not smoking, et cetera, et cetera. The things that we mentioned earlier. That's it. That's it. You just, you've just broken the lipid code. <laughs> that sounds like the title of a quack book. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Well, I'll have to, we'll have to workshop the book title a little bit. So that was just 
the discussion about when this stuff matters and maybe uh, some further discussions necessary with your medical professional or otherwise getting a consultation. As far as what you can do about it, these are things we've alluded to, I mean, since the inception of this podcast and this particular podcast episode. So there's a bunch of, there are lifestyle interventions that can be done, including dietary modification. For that, we'd focus on uh, increasing dietary fiber, again, using fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, things of that nature. Um, to get that number to 30 grams per day or higher. If you do have high blood levels of cholesterol, you can take a fiber supplement and that can further reduce your, uh, uh, your blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels. We would also focus from a dietary component of getting the appropriate amount of energy total. So that way, uh, you can, that supports a healthy level of activity and healthy body composition. We'd also recommend reducing added sugar intake, particularly from sugar-sweetened beverages, highly processed, hyper-palatable, energy-dense foods. So those are the things that tend to become prepackaged and are very, very tasty. I know that they are tasty, but reducing those can improve dietary, uh, sorry, blood and cholesterol levels and also limiting dietary saturated fat. Now, this is a contentious point here, but I want to be clear that when dietary or uh, saturated fat levels climb far above 10%. So if they're at 20% or even higher than that, because you're on an all meat, all red meat diet, when you reduce those levels to 10% or less, blood cholesterol falls precipitously. If you're going from 11, you know, 11% of your total daily energy intake to 10%, not going to see a huge benefit. doesn't mean no benefit, but not a huge benefit. So, you know, if you read a paper, this was, this was from the Nutrarex Consortium. We did a podcast with Alan Flanagan on this where they basically said, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't tell people to reduce their saturated fat intake. And the whole premise there was that the average uh, saturated fat intake level was at about 11% in the United States. The total daily energy intake was about 11% from saturated fat. And we're like, well, that's close enough. And, you know, gun to head. Okay, cool. That is close for many people, but not certainly not all people. So it just depends what your dietary pattern looks like right now. Yep. And uh, again, if you were on this ketogenic carnivore diet or diet that otherwise was high in saturated fat, particularly from red meat or butter, uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend reducing that intake. You'll, your gains will be fine. Um, if you're adding butter to your coffee in the morning, uh, would substitute that for, you know, cream. Not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not doing that. If you're adding <laughs> coconut oil. If you're adding coconut oil, here, here's the other thing. Okay. Do you, have you heard about uh, what is like coconut oil p pulling? Like people do uh, this for their teeth? Lovely. No, I don't know this. How much of this do you think that people swallow? <laughs> <They're> not <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, I used to, I used to coach this, uh, this woman who was a cake tester. That was her job. And we were, we were working on, on some weight loss and uh, nicest lady. But we were having difficulties, you know, get, <laughs> and I asked her, I said, so what's the process of testing a cake? Like you take a bite and then what happens? And she's like, oh, you spit it out. And I was like, all of it though? And like, how can you be sure? Right. Yeah. Cause I, you know, some of it's got to go down. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know about coconut oil pulling, but I probably wouldn't do that either. Uh, no. it's not a dental podcast. We'll save that for. Again, never. Uh, barbell, <laughs> barbell dentistry. Barbell dentistry. That's right. Okay. So that's from a dietary component. Uh, from an exercise component, yes, there's data showing that that can improve. 
blood levels of cholesterol by reducing them um, both indirectly and directly. So 10 out of 10 would recommend meeting the physical activity guidelines uh, or ideally exceeding them that include both resistance training and conditioning. And then uh, if you're a current smoker, we'd recommend smoking cessation. Um, if you have uh, other risk factors, so things like high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, et cetera, et cetera, we would recommend in addition to treating those, you probably need to uh, discuss with your doctor uh, should you be on additional medications to reduce your risk. And speaking of medications, since we're just shills for big pharma here, we're, we're making all that all that pharmaceutical money here. Let's all talk about generic dollars. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about medication. So what's out right now to treat uh, high blood levels of cholesterol and what does the data say on them? Yeah. So I think that uh, you're right, that medications can themselves also be a contentious topic. A lot of people, you know, are very reluctant to start them for a variety of, of reasons, many misconceptions, um, and some understandable fears and concerns. I, I, I tend to point out though, that again, based on what we've discussed, there's a lot of lifestyle things that people can do. Uh, and so I, sometimes if people are in this boat, I am willing to negotiate with them and say, Hey, let's give you a, let's pick an amount of time, say, you know, three months, four months, six months, um, usually airing on the little bit shorter, shorter side of that to see if, uh, what they're able to do from a lifestyle standpoint can make an impact. Cause I would expect if they make a lot of these dietary changes, um, perhaps some of the exercise effects, uh, some of these other things that I would expect to start seeing changes in their blood cholesterol panels within a matter of weeks. And I'll probably recheck it, say, in somewhere in the, you know, eight to 12 week range, maybe 16 week range. And I would expect to be seeing some pretty significant impacts. If I'm not seeing the effects that we're looking for, then it's time to have another conversation about this. And, you know, perhaps there's a lot more genetic stuff at play than the individual may previously thought. And, you know, at this time, as of, uh, you know, 24 January, 2022, we're not uh, yet editing people's genomes for this stuff that may, that may change in the coming years. Um, but at this time we're not editing people's genes. And so you you have the genes you have, and these are probably going to be your blood levels if nothing else is done. And you also don't win a prize for going through life without using medications. Um, in fact, uh, there are lots of, uh, lots of, there's lots of data that these can decrease the risk of uh, cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes, um, decrease mortality. And some of this is extremely long-term data. For example, in those kind of patients that I mentioned that have this genetically very high cholesterol called familial hypercholesterolemia, we have like over 20-year follow-up data on these individuals who are on statin medications to get those levels under control. And they do great. And they have lower risk of death compared to their parents who did not have the advantage of these medications uh, before they came out in the like mid to late 1980s. Um, and so, you know, we have the, the evidence is there. And like I said, you don't win a prize for going through life and dying prematurely from a uh, from an issue that could have potentially been prevented through, uh, you know, uh, medical advances and, and medical treatment. So we do have a bunch of these medications. The most common class are the statin medicines. Um, these, again, work by altering um, the uh, your, your body's ability to produce more cholesterol inside your cells. And as a result, they kind of get hungry for cholesterol. And so this up-regulates. This means they put more of these receptors out on their cells, and they just suck it up out of the blood. Um, so these uh, have varying uh, durations of effect uh, and potency and dose ranges and things like that, all of which are, you know, stuff that we like to nerd out about, but is not worth our time on the podcast here. But these these differences between them can be relevant for a patient. If, for example, they take one and they don't do so well on one, um, 
the next move is often to try them on a different one because there are variations uh, between them in terms of their um, tolerability for, for some patients. Um, and so these are among the most studied medicines we have in existence and are particularly effective at lowering blood levels, lowering cardiovascular risk. Um, and these benefits when used in appropriately selected patients, um, these benefits do tend to outweigh the risks um, of taking them. Other medications we have available, one common, uh, readily available, inexpensive, super safe, well-tolerated one is called ezetimibe. Um, and so I will often use that one in addition to a statin for somebody who is very high risk and is not, you know, we're not getting the, the blood panel down to where we want it to be. I'll often use that in combination. Um, more uh, advanced, more potent, and more expensive uh, ones are known as the PCSK9 inhibitor class. These are injectable medicines, although there's currently an oral version that is in uh, clinical trials that will be interested to see how, how effective uh, that is and, and um, how potent and, and available it will be uh, down the line. Uh, and so these are typically reserved for the highest risk patients. These are for people who maybe are already on those other ones, and maybe they're still having strokes or still having heart attacks, or they have genetic issues that are leaving them with very high cholesterol that's resistant to those other kind of medical treatments. And then we also have some even newer agents that are uh, kind of coming up now, one called bempedoic acid, another one called inclosirin, which is a very interesting um, mechanism of how it works. And it's also kind of neat because it's just a twice a year uh, subcutaneous injection once every six months. And it has like a durable effect, which is pretty impressive. And it makes it so that, Hey, you don't even need to take uh, medicine every day or whatever the case is. It, it um, has high potential to substantially uh, decrease people's risk, particularly for those who are at highest risk. Um, so again, I could talk uh, in detail all day about these things, but that's also, I think outside the scope of the podcast, but there are lots of options, um, that can be discussed with your doctor. And interestingly, another strategy that I've used with some patients, because traditionally the approach to a lot of medication management, and this also applies the same for blood pressure, is doctors would prescribe one medicine and they would try to maximize that medicine, get it up to the highest dose possible um, uh, before uh, uh, starting a second one if the patient needed it. And what has been observed uh, since then is that really the biggest bang for your buck that you get is for from the lowest dose of the medicine and then increasing it further from there to the maximum dose gets you diminishing returns, just like with most other things. It's not to say there's not a role for the maximum dose, but rather that you get the biggest effect from the initial dose. And then as you increase it, you get less, um, you know, a, a, a marginal benefits. Um, whereas the risk of side effects does tend to increase as you get up to the maximum doses. And so there've been some very interesting, you know, studies, both in the blood pressure realm and in the blood cholesterol realm of using like very low doses of multiple agents, multiple medicines, to take advantage of kind of the, the, the different ways in which they work, getting you that maximum kind of bang for your buck at the low dose with the lowest risk of side effects by avoiding that high dose range. So there's, there's one interesting, again, blood pressure study where they use like a quarter dose of four different medicines um, and they got the same or better blood pressure lowering compared to the maximum dose of one other medication, which is kind of neat. So I've used this strategy with a few patients to, to maximize like the odds that they tolerate it well. So would you, would you rather be on one medication at max dose or three medications at the lowest dose? Probably the multiple at the lowest dose or even Ooh. a quarter or a half or something like that, because that has the lowest risk of side effects and it's going to get me the biggest bang for my buck. The trade-off, of course, and this is you know readily recognized, any clinician that's listening to this is like, well, there's pill burden to consider how many pills you're having to take, sure. um, which I totally get and is just a case-by-case -case conversation with the, with the person. I'm, I'm super excited about both Verve Therapeutics and Precision. Both of them, these are gene editing drugs 
to lower cholesterol based on that PSK9 gene, PCSK9. And uh, well, we'll see. So far, some very preliminary data looks promising, but uh, you imagine we're just changing people's genes. Gattaca is the future, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is the wrap of the cholesterol podcast. It's time to enter the internet trolling lightning round. Cue <laughs> lightning sounds and other sort of auditory stimulation. All right. So this is a segment where I get to troll Austin based on the pushback that we anticipate and or have had previously. So question number one, isn't having low cholesterol a problem? Like, Don't some studies show that those with higher cholesterol levels live longer than those with low cholesterol? Uh, so as a preface, all of these troll questions are answered in cholesterol part three article, the lengthy one that's on the website with all the references. So these things, uh, if you want more detailed answers, you can find them there. So isn't having low cholesterol a problem? Uh, it is not itself a problem. And the most, uh, the strongest, most compelling evidence we have for this comes from two sources. One is the genetic data. People who are born with genetically very low cholesterol levels do not have a higher risk of cancer, dementia, uh, cognitive impairment almost any other medical condition. They do not live uh, shorter lifespans. They do not die sooner. They experience no detectable problems from this. That's thing number one. Number two, uh, intervention studies, trials of uh, medications like those very potent PCSK9 inhibitor medications. They have taken patients who already had, you know, quote unquote, low uh, uh, cholesterol levels, but who were still having heart attacks and strokes. And they treated them with these medicines to get them down to ultra low blood cholesterol levels and still similarly did not see evidence of increases in, uh, uh, you know, almost any uh, major adverse outcomes, not higher risks of, again, things like dementia, uh, 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 lots of other health complications that are detailed in the article that I wrote in, in part three. As an aside, we also see in hunter-gatherer populations, their normal blood cholesterol levels tend to be well below 100. That's like total cholesterol, and their LDL cholesterol levels can be um, in the range of like 30 to 50, um, which uh, as compared to Americans, where the average is closer to 200 uh, uh, for the total, um, if not a little bit higher, and their LDL levels tend to be in the low to mid 100s. Uh, these are all milligram per deciliter units. Um, uh, so similarly, we do not have any strong evidence that having low cholesterol is a problem in itself. There are studies that show that people having higher cholesterol levels living longer than those with lower cholesterol levels. This has led to the suggestion that there's some sort of a cholesterol paradox, that high cholesterol is longevity promoting. Again, this is com directly and completely refuted by the genetic data. Those who are born high do not have the better outcomes if they, that, if, people who were born with higher cholesterol levels did have longer lifespan, lower risk of disease, then sure, there that would immediately support the claim that is being made. Um, however, they do not. Those with uh, the genetic variants that lead to lower cholesterol levels over the course of the lifespan are those who have better outcomes. And that alone is sufficient to refute that claim. Uh, but we still, even though that's sufficient, we have like 10 other lines of evidence that also uh, refute that claim. Um, and those are all detailed in the article as well. I, I had my cholesterol drawn once so far in my life, and my total cholesterol was 140, uh, like 140 something, 140, whatever is what I remember. And uh, I do remember that uh, the ordering physician was like, this is, this could, some people might say that this is low. And I wanted to write back this reply, like, what people? 
<laughs> yeah, but I did because I just at that t- point I was like, "Good, we're we're good to go. Let's continue." Yeah, you just went on living your life. I did with low with cholesterol at a healthy level. All right, troll question number two. I heard that most people admitted to the hospital for a heart attack have normal cholesterol levels, so cholesterol seems irrelevant. Yes, I can very much see where this idea would come from, um, particularly if you do not have uh, a deeper understanding of this topic. Um, We've known since the 1960s, back in the original Framingham trials, that about a third of these kind of events, heart attacks, happened in people whose total cholesterol was less than 200, which is the current kind of quote-unquote normal. It's really important to understand that all diagnostic cutoffs in medicine um, uh, pretty much are uh, arbitrary. And this is diagnostic cutoffs that are on like continuous scales, not like a positive versus negative. But um, like blood pressure, for example, who decided where the high blood pressure cutoff was? It was made up. And it has, as a result, shifted over time. It has come down as we learned more about the spectrum of risk. Obviously, living with a blood pressure of 180 over 100 uh, long term presents higher risk compared with 150 over 95. But we also know that living with 150 over 95 still is higher risk than 135 over 85. And so as a result, again, these kind of cutoffs have drifted downwards as we have learned more about the spectrum of risk. The same thing applies to this cholesterol measurement. The cutoff was established back in the 60s, that total cholesterol of 200, uh, sorry, not the 60s, in the 80s with ATP1, they said less than 200 is quote unquote desirable cholesterol levels. When even at that point, we knew that there was a fraction of people who were experiencing Uh, heart attacks with levels below that. And so we also have evidence more recently that even in people who have uh, um, no other risk factors for heart disease, their risk of developing plaque increases across the level of, uh, across the spectrum of LDL cholesterol, starting from around 60 to 70 milligrams per deciliter on up, meaning that even with their levels in that quote unquote normal range um, uh, of total cholesterol or LDL cholesterol, whichever you're, you're measuring, the risk of plaque development increases across that spectrum. So these are reasons why the argument is, uh, the, the better argument to make is that the current cutoffs for what is normal versus abnormal are actually too liberal. We, the, we should probably lower what the cutoffs are for quote unquote normal, or just not call it normal at all would be my, my bias, come up with a different way to describe this relationship. That is a spectrum of risk, just like with blood pressure. Um, the only other thing that I would mention is that there is this complicated, uh, physiologic process called the acute phase response. The acute phase response is something that your whole, your body, uh, puts into motion when you get sick under trauma, uh, when there's inflammation, when there's infection, when there's any major kind of physiologic stressor, this acute phase response kicks into gear and, and a whole bunch of processes start going on. And these processes can raise blood levels of certain things and they can lower blood levels of other things. It turns out that one of the things that can decrease during this acute fate response, which would happen, for example, if you're getting admitted to the hospital for a heart attack, uh, one of the things that goes down are your cholesterol levels. And so measuring blood cholesterol levels at the time of a heart attack is not the best way to get a sense of what somebody's entire lifelong exposure to blood cholesterol and lipoproteins has been over the whole lifespan. In the same way, another thing that decreases during a major physiologic stressor like that are vitamin D levels. And this has come up and become really uh, discussed a ton lately, where people will have all kinds of studies that they'll cite saying, look at this, patients who got the sickest from 
COVID-19, uh, they had the lowest vitamin D levels. So therefore you need to supplement vitamin D. It's like, you got that backwards. Uh, vitamin D is one of these part of this acute phase response. It goes down when people get really sick and the sicker they get, the lower it goes. Um, so it's the association is going in the other direction. Uh, and so the same applies here with the cholesterol piece. It's going to go down in the setting of a heart attack. So what matters is not what your blood cholesterol levels are at the time of a heart attack, rather what your total cumulative lifelong exposure has been over your entire lifespan up until that moment. Makes sense to me, but we'll see what the internet says. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down already, Baraki, but what about uh, these different ratios, total cholesterol to HDL, HDL to triglycerides? I heard that these ratios matter more than the standard, you know, LDL particle number. What do you say to that? Uh, yeah. So ratios have some utility. When we look at ratios, they can tell us certain things. So for example, if I look at um, somebody's cholesterol panel and I see a high total cholesterol level, I see a high uh, LDL cholesterol level, I see a low HDL cholesterol level and really high triglycerides, the ratios that will come out of that will lead me to suspect that this person may have something like insulin resistance, diabetes. They probably have really, really, really high number of particles. And so I can draw some conclusions from it. However, what we also know is that ratios, just by virtue of the fact that they can change due to changes either in a numerator or in a denominator, um, the direction or where a ratio ends up kind of shaking out is telling us less directly compared to actually measuring particle numbers. In other words, if I see a ratio goes up, what does that tell me? Well, either the numerator went up or the denominator went down or some component of both. And I can't really be super confident in what drove that, that change um, compared to just measuring particle numbers. And when we met, when we know the actual number of particles, particularly the number of particles across the whole lifespan, um, then uh, that tends to, tends to be the best predictor. So these apolipoprotein B levels tend to be the best predictors. And this has been shaken out as uh, cited in the evidence that I provided in the article. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me that from a standard lipid, lipid panel that the com combination of two or more numbers can be in some cases more predictive than a single number. But as far as actually like stratifying risk, it seems like that apolipoprotein B number trumps all because it is yeah. actually uh, taking into account multiple different fractions um, mm -hmm. of the from the lipid panel. Not that not that the internet was trolling me and asking me these questions, but if they were, <laughs> that's what I would say. Uh, all right, well. What about the size of the lipoprotein? Like, is it true that the size of the boat matters more than the motion of the ocean or no? <laughs> I think you're mixing up your... Uh, oh. <laughs> my eponyms. Oh, good. Oh, good. Uh, so uh, again, remember that these are spherical particles. So they're like balls. And these spheres, obviously the uh, volume of a sphere, it is related to the radius of the sphere. And so even small changes in the radius of a sphere can result in really marked changes in the volume. And the volume tells you how much cholesterol and how much triglycerides and stuff like that these particles can actually carry. And so there's this been, been this idea that if I have larger, quote unquote, fluffy, I don't know why they're described as fluffy, but people say large, fluffy LDL particles, that those are harmless. Those are totally good. Whereas if I have small, dense LDL particles, that those are super dangerous. And so when we have patients who have small, dense particles, they do indeed tend to be at higher risk of having heart disease. However, the question then is, is it due to the differences in size themselves? We know that the particles that are getting into the walls of our blood vessels, if they're below about 70 nanometers in size, nanometers is a real tiny measurement, but less than 70 nanometers in size that they can get into the walls of our blood vessels. 
As it turns out, the differences between large and small LDL particle sizes is not that great. Um, it turns out that the hot, the uh, larger uh, um, LDL particles are defined as those that are greater than 25 nanometers in size, which you will note is less than 70, so still small enough to get into the walls of our blood vessels, whereas the smaller particles are defined as those that are less than 25 nanometers in size, often down as low as like 18 or 19 nanometers, which are also less than 70 nanometers. So whether you're small or large, both are smaller than 70. Both can get into the walls of our blood vessels, which raises the question, why is the person who has small, dense particles at higher risk? Turns out that that's because, again, when they're smaller, their radius is smaller, their volume is smaller. And so for the same amount of cholesterol, you need more particles to carry that same amount of cholesterol. But even if you had large particles carrying that amount of cholesterol, if you got that number lower, you would be at lower risk compared to if it were higher. Makes sense to me. But again, we'll let the internet decide. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what about studies showing that higher dietary saturated fat intake has no impact on heart disease or death? That kind of goes against this whole thing, doesn't it? Yes, uh, it would uh, if that were correct. And there are lots of papers that people can find that will make those kind of claims or conclusions. So recall what we were saying that the most significant impacts on heart disease risk happen when diets that are very high in saturated fat uh, from those particular sources, typically greater than 18 to 20% of calories or so, are decreased to around 10% or less. And so there are multiple important things that should be considered when looking at studies that purport to refute this relationship. First is, did the study actually look at people who were consuming amounts that crossed that threshold of effect? In other words, were they starting out consuming 22% and they decreased it to 8%? I would expect to see an effect there. Or did the study look at people who started out consuming 10% and decreased it to 6? I wouldn't expect to see a, an effect. Or 22 to 20 or 18 to 13. You need to cross that threshold of effect in order to actually observe a difference. You need sufficient contrast between groups to see that. Um, the second common issue that comes up is that uh, this effect of dietary saturated fat happens by way of increasing blood cholesterol levels, blood LDL levels. Um, these dietary sources decrease the uh, function of our LDL receptors, so we can't clear this stuff from our blood as well. And so as a result, if you have a study that does this uh, manipulation of people's diet and then controls for blood cholesterol levels, you've just erased the effect of the dietary change. And so, of course, you're going to come to a null conclusion where you say there's been no effect. So there are numerous meta-analyses that are commonly cited for dietary saturated fat not having an impact on heart disease risk. And when you look at the included studies or what they did in the course of the meta-analysis, they control for blood cholesterol, blood cholesterol levels. So they're just kind of erased. They're like, here's uh, they're just erasing the uh, uh, kind of causal link between the diet and the heart disease effects. Um, so there's more to this conversation, but this is a real complex topic. And so we just direct people to that section in uh, the article on the website, part three. Love that. All right. The big pharma section of the lightning round. Uh, well, I heard that statins harm more people than high cholesterol does. So uh, this is literally flies in the face of every piece of evidence on this. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's in existence. I actually, I honestly don't even know how to address this. It's unlikely that I'm going to be able to change this person's mind. Um, but I think it is important to keep in mind earlier what I mentioned that uh, the potential benefit that somebody can gain from these treatments depends on what their baseline risk is. 
So people who are at highest risk stand to benefit the most. People who are at lowest risk stand to benefit the least. And the other thing is the duration of treatment. So if you look at a study that puts people on a statin for a week, of course, I'm not going to see boatloads of heart attacks that have been prevented. Same for three months, six months, nine months, I'm going to start to see maybe some. But if I start seeing it over the course of, you know, years, that's when we really start to see effects. Because again, this is a slow moving lifelong process. The earlier in life we get these levels under control, the lower people's risk is. And so this is corroborated again by genetic data, including the genes that statins affect. And so that's another really strong piece of evidence. If you have variations in the gene um, that is targeted by statins, we see predictable the same types of effects uh, in terms of blood cholesterol lowering and heart disease risk lowering. So that's just, um, you know, false. Okay. Well, why do doctors only want to treat symptoms and not the underlying disease? Uh, so I would challenge that claim, <laughs> um, particularly because addressing things like the dietary changes we mentioned earlier, getting physical people to meet the physical activity guidelines, getting them to stop smoking, and then addressing residual risk of high cholesterol from like genetic variations using the medications that we have available. Those are the ways that we can reduce the risk of this disease developing and progressing over the lifespan. Um, but this claim happens, you know, this comes up all the time where, where people say that doctors just want to treat symptoms. You don't want to treat the quote unquote root cause. We're not into prevention. And then for example, uh, we come out with, uh, you know, an immunization that can has extremely high efficacy, prevent uh, an infectious uh, disease that's going around right now. And people say, oh no, don't prevent it like that. Instead, we should take medications after you develop the disease so that you don't end up going to the hospital. So, uh, you know, make up your mind. What do you want? Yeah. What do you want? Uh, all right. Well, if we know so much about heart disease risk and we have effective treatments, why are heart disease deaths increasing? A very good question. And you will see disingenuous graphs posted uh, that illustrate heart disease rates increasing. And this is an artifact of an increasing population. When you correct for the population and you look at rates of heart disease, for example, per 100,000 population, rates have been declining for decades through for a variety of reasons um, to include uh, various public health things, smoking cessation, blood cholesterol reduction. Um, and this has even been shown in, in particular cohorts around the world um, where these kind of public health interventions have been put into play in the population. But yeah, when you correct for population, rates are decreasing, not increasing. Seems like a lie then. Okay. <laughs> well, let's wrap this up. 90 minutes later, we talked about the multiple lines of converging evidence showing an increased risk of blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels and their influence on heart disease risk. Higher levels of blood cholesterol and lipoproteins have a significant risk, increase the risk of heart disease. Full stop. I would like to just add one comment here, or I suppose two. One is to recall that this is, again, a cumulative lifelong process, number one. And number two, that all risk is probabilistic. It is a probability of risk. This means that just because you know somebody who has had high cholesterol and did not die or experience a heart attack does not refute this relationship. Just like knowing somebody who has smoked until they're 100 years old and didn't get lung cancer does not refute the causal relationship between smoking and lung cancer. It's a probability. It's not a 100% uh, definitive guarantee. But you just don't know if you're going to be the person who experiences that bad outcome or not. And so we recommend getting your risk under control. Indeed. Uh, we talked about different interventions that can be made. So for the diet, increasing dietary fiber from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, etc. reducing foods with added sugar. Those tend to be the hyper palatable and, uh, energy dense foods, um, and sugar sweetened beverages, limiting those to, uh, less than 5% of total daily 
energy intake, limiting saturated fat uh, to less than 10% of total daily energy intake, particularly the that coming from red meat, whereas things from uh, saturated fat from milk probably don't need to worry about, but butter, meat, uh, coconut oil, wherever else people are mainlining saturated fat from, you could limit that. And also making sure that your diet is providing the correct amount of energy to sustain uh, healthy levels of activity and a healthy body composition. That would be good. Exercise to meet or ideally exceed the physical activity guidelines, uh, smoking cessation, things of that nature, uh, moderated alcohol use would all improve blood cholesterol uh, and uh, blood lipoprotein levels in addition to reducing risk of other health conditions um, that we've talked about on this podcast before. We've talked about when medications are necessary. So when that cumulative risk is significant, which we can detect via multiple different tests that you will have and discuss with your medical provider, medications can be useful at limiting that risk. Uh, And the lightning round and the previous discussion on medications beforehand should have assaged any concerns over taking those to uh, reduce your risk. And any recommended further readings, Dr. Baraki? Honestly, there's a reason I put many, many hours with the assistance of uh, Dr. Campitelli helping with editing and some graphic production uh, put into those three articles. I designed the first two to be as lay reader friendly and accessible as I could possibly make them. So I would go there. And then if you want to nerd out further, part three is more in detail, more scientific, and has all the linked references in there. You can go as far down this rabbit hole as you want. Love it. All right, that's a wrap on episode 165. This is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined uh, by Dr. Baraki. Thanks for him for joining. This has been a nice discussion on blood cholesterol and blood lipoprotein levels. For all of the stuff we talked about in this podcast, check out the links in the description below. And before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.